So I think instead, the best way to do that is to say, I'm going to uh, really try to understand the best arguments that someone may have, because I mean, ultimately, if the Bible is right, and I think it is, that means that all of us, apart from Christ, are doing exactly what Adam was doing in the garden, which is, is hiding from the presence of a God that we know is there and that we don't want to admit is there. And so we hide in the creation. We hide in different aspects of the creation. So uh, someone may hide behind, uh, I think everything is just Adam's random chance. Somebody may hide behind a sort of a self-righteous uh, version of religion. Somebody may hide behind a, a sexual hedonism or a pugilism or whatever. I mean, but, but it's the same fundamental problem. And so I think, how do we, how do we break through that? Uh, we break through that by holding forth Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus isn't, um, one of the things that always strikes me in the Gospels is that Jesus is never frantic when everybody around him is frantic. And in those moments when Jesus does seem to be um, animated by anger or anguish, it's always in moments when no one else is. Maybe you're a bit like me and you are exhausted from the culture war. You don't want to be a combatant, but you also don't want to be just mindlessly assimilated either. How do we navigate that tension, especially for those that are following or at the very least genuinely curious about the way of Jesus? How might people looking for a guiding story in our American hero myths that fill the comic book pages and box office big screens actually stumble upon rich theological truths? My guest today, Dr. Russell Moore, is here to help us think deeply about these questions. Dr. Moore is president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. It's the moral and public policy agency of the nation's largest Protestant denomination. He's also the author of several books, including Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel, and The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home. He's a proud native Mississippian, and he and his wife Maria are the parents of five sons. I found that Dr. Moore shares an affinity for cultural theology, so for you longtime listeners to this podcast who might not be familiar with Dr. Moore's work, Dr. Moore is a great public theologian, a theologian of culture, and uh, I also found that he shares an affinity for nuanced and thoughtful dialogue instead of polemics, and even a bit of my bias for DC Comics, so uh, sorry, Marvel fans, you're great too. <laughs> I think you'll still get something out of this. So I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Dr. Russell Moore. Dr. Moore, it's such a pleasure to be joined uh, by you today. I've been following your work, um, though I didn't grow up in an SBC, Southern Baptist Convention church or context. I think my first exposure to your work um, happened roughly around the last presidential cycle back in 2016. And there had been some national headlines I, you had made for um, calling evangelicals to consider how we could 
support uh, refugees and suggested that principled Christian ethics could actually find a way to develop innovative public policies that we could hope provide some measure of relief to those fleeing violence and still ensuring the safety of our immediate neighbors. And it seemed like that this kind of public theology and some of the other things you were doing advocating for equal religious liberties protections for Muslims uh, at the time earned you some pretty outspoken and uh, powerful critics at the time, including our, our current president. I'm, I'm just curious what kind of formative events and influences in your life built within you this sort of principled resolve to say what you believe is true, even when you know it could likely upset very powerful people. Well, I think that really regardless of, of what anybody is doing uh, in, in terms of service and, and leadership, uh, the primary th thing has to be a framing around a sense of judgment. And, and I say that because, you know, if I talk to a, a lot of my atheist or agnostic uh, friends and I say, what do you know about Christians? Uh, often they'll say, well, they're judgmental uh, and they have a sense of, of judgment. And I tend to think that actually we, we don't have enough of a sense of judgment in the right way. Uh, so we live in a world that's sort of filled with judgment seats all over the place. But we're the people who recognize that we're going to stand before God and give an account uh, for our lives, as Jesus says, for every idle word. And so what that means is having to live a life where uh, you're at least aspiring to be shaped and formed by the scriptures and by the spirit, to have the sorts of um, intuitions and impulses uh, that, that would best line up with, with Jesus Christ. None of us are going to do that perfectly. We're going we're gonna to all do that uh, badly at, at some time or the other, but that ought to at least be the goal. With any particular people in your life as you look back that instilled in you this sense of, uh, I, I'm going to stay committed to principles. I'm, I'm open to being wrong, which I, I think you've you clearly demonstrated genuine openness uh, to seeing things in a different way. But I'm just curious if there were particular people or, or theological influences, whether they were, you know, real life people that you were interacting with over the course of your life, or there were particular books that you read that that, that, that gave you this sense of, no, I, I can continue to do what I believe is right, even in the face of potentially very, um, very strong blowback? Well, I think there were two people, I, at least two. And, and one of them I knew personally, and one was dead long before I was born. And, and the one that I knew was a pastor that I had in my boyhood named uh, M.L. Failer, um, who was pastor of my, my church. And one of the things that he really demonstrated to me was the fact that he had a kind of integrity uh, that was unique, not just in church life, but in, in any sort of life. He, he really was the same person uh, behind closed doors as he, was, uh, as he was in public. And the other thing was he had this sense of... Um, a kind of humble confidence where he really did know who he was in Christ in such a way that he wouldn't get rattled hmm. um, in the way that I would see other people rattled, either toward uh, fear um, and just accommodating whatever anybody wanted around them 
or in terms of this sort of um, lashing out hmm. uh, that, that, that we tend to see. And so that was a, a, a very good model for a kid to watch uh, growing up. The other was C.S. Lewis, who when I was about 15, I went through a real uh, spiritual crisis uh, where um, I was a devoted Christian, loved Jesus, loved, loved the Bible. And, uh, but I started to see things in Bible Belt Christianity uh, that scared me um, in ways that Bible Belt Christianity not only seemed to be accommodated to the culture, but in some ways seemed to be dictated to uh, by, by the culture around them. And so, uh, I started to notice these things to say, why, uh, why is there, uh, such attention to what people outside the church are doing in terms of moral decadence, but there's racist jokes being told and, you know, all, all of that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it led me to a crisis, but thankfully I had read, uh, the, the entire Chronicles of Narnia as a small child. Um, and so I recognized the name C.S. Lewis when I saw it on the spine of Mirror Christianity. And that book, uh, the Lord really used that book to turn me uh, around and, and really to, to reconfirm me in the faith, but also to put me in touch with a, a broader sense of the kingdom of God. And, um, and I think the reason for that is not because of the arguments in Mere Christianity, good as they are. That, that wasn't my problem. My problem wasn't that I couldn't cognitively understand the arguments. Uh, instead, what it was was that Lewis, there's a tone that comes across in his writing where he's obviously not trying to sell you anything. He, he's not right, trying to right. mobilize you uh, for, for some sort of, of movement. He's bearing witness uh, to, with, with this sort of confidence uh, that, that I needed uh, at the moment and still do. Well, you mentioning C.S. Lewis makes a lot of sense as I, th I think about uh, at least my exposure to your work in ministry over the past few years. It, it seems to me that you, you genuinely have strived in a position that does require you to speak out about political issues. It seems to me that you are really working and aiming yourself towards having your politics be downstream of your theology instead of vice versa. And it also seems to me that in, in your manner, your approach, the way you communicate, that you're not out to win a culture war. And I grew up, uh, Dr. Moore, I'm, you know, I'm, 30, I'm, go, I'm gonna be 37 this year. So I, I grew up in, in evangelical context in sort of the 80s, 90s heyday of, of culture war. And uh, it's very wearying uh, to, to be a participant in that war. And I also have seen the effects in my generation there's not, um, there's, there's been, as you're well aware, a mass exodus of, of millennials leaving evangelical churches, uh, leaving mainline churches too, as well. It, it seems like the culture war approach hasn't worked. So I'm curious for you, uh, what sorts of biblical precedents, or maybe there were biblical motifs that you looked at as a guide for your work in, in navigating the dangers of both as you mentioned here, you, you, the dangers of cultural assimilation on one side, and yet mm -hmm. on the other side, the dangers of being a combatant in the culture war. So what were some of the, the ways as you started to dig into theology, biblical theology, what sorts of biblical motifs, or maybe there were precedents that you saw in the scripture to guide your work? 
Well, I think the uh, the first thing is that one of the biggest fears that I have, and, and one of the the greatest obstacles I think uh, to the advance of the Christian faith, is the idea of Christianity as a means to an end, uh, a means to any end, uh, no, no matter no matter what it is. So, if Christianity is a tool, uh, even a tool for something good then uh, it's going to become something other than Christianity. Hmm. Um, and so that has to be constantly guarded, especially in a time when, um, you know, Walker Percy, uh, a novelist, just a lot to me in my life, I wrote about in the moviegoer, novel The Moviegoer, uh, a character by the name of Binks Bowling who would uh, go into the library in his suburban New Orleans uh, home and read the liberal political magazines and the conservative uh, political magazines. And he said he really wasn't a liberal or a conservative. It wasn't about the arguments. It was the fact that their hatred for each other uh, was was the only sort of sign of life uh, th- that he could find. And uh, of course, the Bible speaks about that constantly, sort of unhealthy craving for controversy um, in a way that it, it, can, it can simulate life in the same way that someone who is uh, cheating on a spouse can have this simulation of, uh, you know, you, you talk to somebody and you say, what are you doing? Why are you, why are you breaking up your, your marriage? And he or she will say, well, this person makes me feel alive. And what they really mean by that is, I feel like I'm in high school again. Right, and right, right. I have the sort of, I, I like you, do you like me sort of thing going on. The same thing can happen in terms of all of the various uh, kinds of controversies that we have uh, in, uh, in American life and in global life right now. It's not healthy. Um, and, but I think that uh, fundamentally for me, and this, this sounds like um, a pat sort of Sunday school answer, but you know, I'm a pat Sunday school guy, I guess. Uh, I, I think it's the, the person of Jesus and the gospel uh, of Jesus that, that has to frame all of that. And so, um, you know, when, you, when it comes to, uh, for instance, uh, why, would I, uh, why would I not caricature and rail against? Um, the, so I think instead the best way to do that is to say, I'm going to uh, really try to understand the best arguments that someone may have because mm, that's right. I mean, yeah. ultimately, if the Bible is right, and I think it is, that means that all of us, apart from Christ, are doing exactly what Adam was doing in the garden, which is, is hiding from the presence of a God that we know is there and that we don't want to admit is there. And so we hide in the creation. We hide in different aspects of the creation. So uh, someone may hide behind, uh, I think everything is just atoms and random chance. Somebody may hide behind a sort of a self-righteous version of religion. Somebody may hide behind uh, a sexual hedonism or uh, pugilism or whatever. I mean, but, but it's the same fundamental problem. And so I think, how do we, how do we break through that? Uh, we break through that by holding forth Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus isn't, um, one of the things that always strikes me in the Gospels is that Jesus is never 
frantic when everybody around him is frantic. And in those moments when Jesus does seem to be um, animated by anger or anguish, it's always in moments when no one else is. Mm-hmm. They're at the temple, and Jesus is is provoked uh, in the temple by a sight that everyone would have seen before, uh, money changers. Or when Jesus is sweating blood uh, in, in anguish, the disciples are asleep. They don't see the problem. But then when he's being arrested, and they're all panicking and, and uh, pulling out their swords, Jesus is saying, put the swords away. You, you, you don't think I can handle this? I mean, so I think there's something about that um, that really ought to cause us to, to say, well, what, what are we doing? And what that means is, I think, uh, also recognizing where one's own point of vulnerability is. So there are going to be some people who are going to say, well, my particular point of vulnerability is just to say, what do all of the people around me uh, believe? And I'm going to meld into that. And so if I'm in an unbelieving context, I'm going to be carried along with that or, or whatever. Uh, th- those are the sorts of people who need to really firm up uh, their, their, their vulnerability there. Then there are going to be other people who are going to say, well, what's my point of vulnerability? It's going to be to see uh, people who disagree with me not as my mission field, but as my enemies to be destroyed or humiliated. I need to be aware of that. And, and sometimes that means not just addressing those issues uh, spiritually, but it also means saying there are certain contexts where I shouldn't be. Not because no one should be there, but because I am not at a place where I'm spiritually able to be there. And so sometimes people will will say to me, should I be uh, working in this context or that context or or what have you? And and I'll always say, I don't know. Uh, (laughs) In the same way that um, if if someone called me and said, can you come and talk to me right now? I'm having a a spiritual crisis and uh, I need you to come and get me. And I'm in a, a bar somewhere. I could go get that person drive that person to my house, talk to them. I have a friend who's a recovering alcoholic who would have to say, I can't go because I, I wouldn't take the person out of the bar, he would say. He would say, instead, my problem is, I think I would, I would be destroyed by that. And if I'm even in that context, I would, I would fall to it. So you have to know where your points of, of, uh, of weakness are and shore those things up. Yeah, as... Uh... Sunday school Pat answer that was much uh, that's not very uh, <laughs> that's that's not your basic well just uh, just follow Jesus we we've you've fleshed that out pretty well you know I was just even reflecting this week on um, just it seems the way that uh, even maybe conversations or when you've been on you know CNN or Fox News how perhaps your attempt to bear witness to the truth to bear witness to Christ. Uh, pings people's culture war radar. And I, I, I imagine that there are people that have tried to co-op the, uh, your, your attempt to bear witness to Christ as a affirmation of perhaps their, their cultural, cultural tribe. And what really strikes me is interesting, you know, it's, it's not Sunday school, because if we actually do go back to the life of Jesus, he's, 
living in a cultural context that is just as much embroiled in culture war as we are today. I mean, minus social media. But you have these uh, disparate parties that have very different political and social agendas, and they all seem to be attracted to Jesus in one sense. Even the Pharisees and the Sadducees are, are, are gravitating towards him, maybe seeing if the, uh, the, 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 the revolutionary energy brewing around him can be steered in the direction of their p- particular agendas. But right. as Jesus is the truth, right, that he's, he's, also, he's the truth that works always within culture. There's no cultureless Christianity. We have, we receive the word in our cultural context. I read my Bible in English. You know, right. it was originally the New Testament's written in Greek. Those are all, we don't have language without culture. And yet, as the truth, he's also transcendent. And so uh, this, this internal struggle that we have to deal with recognizing the truth that's happening within our cultural context, but to also bear witness to the, the transcendent truth that, that, that goes beyond our, our cultural context and our cultural tribe seems to, be, seems to be the difficult tension that we have to live in as Christians. It seems to me that uh, there's, there's some ways that I see you particularly trying to encourage, uh, especially Christians in this regard. I, I love the short reflections that you do on your, uh, your social media, on your Instagram page that you call Readings in Exile or Reading in Exile. Tell us a little bit of what you try to do in those videos. Uh, what inspired it? What do you mean by exile? And uh, maybe why you think Christians should read more broadly than just the Bible, commentaries, or theology books. Well, uh, the, the reason that I called it uh, reading in exile was sort of a, uh, sort of a play on words because it started uh, when the, the global pandemic uh, first started sweeping, uh, sweeping the world. And so all of us were in our respective homes. Um, and so a lot of people felt as though they were exiled from one another. And, and so this was a way just to come on and say, hey, while you're while you're at home, here, here are some things that I have read that I think maybe you might, you might like, uh, and here's why, and here's, here's why not. Um, and so that, that became that conversation. But behind that, and, and I had some people who would say, well, you know, once quarantine is ever over, does that mean that reading in exile will go away? And, and I said, no, because Exile doesn't end <laughs> in, in the sense that the New Testament means it, which is not, um, you have to define what we mean by exile. And so I think there are some people who, when they hear exile, what they think is, oh, uh, this means that we're marginalized and we're, we're outside of the, the, the mainstream or we're being persecuted. Oh, sometimes. But uh, what I mean by it is what the Apostle Peter means when he says, live your, your lives as strangers and exiles, which means that you know that you, as the book of Hebrews put it, you don't have an abiding city. Uh, so there's a sense of uh, pilgrimage and a sense of um, uh, what God is, is doing is evoking a certain kind of um, home, but mm. also a certain kind of homelessness and a certain kind of longing and, and restlessness. And that's what the, that's what the Christian life is always, uh, going to be about. And so when it comes to, when it comes to reading, I mean, one of the things that, 
if we go back to the figure of Jesus, one of the things that is striking to me about Jesus, and you mentioned uh, sort of all of the, the cultural tribes and dynamics that he's dealing with. One of the reasons that I think Jesus handled things the way that he did is because he, as John says, he knew what was in humanity and mm. he did not need anyone to teach him that. And so you have, you have Jesus who is responding. He, he's almost pulling people out of the herds that they have been embedded in or have embedded themselves in and is seeing them. So Matthew is not a category of tax collector. He's Matthew. Hmm. And uh, you know, Simon the zealot is not a category of zealot. He's Simon, you know, and, and you see that with sort of in, in every direction so that when Jesus sees uh, Nathaniel in John 1, there's, there's an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Nathaniel responds the way that any of us would. If someone gives us a compliment and we say, wait, you don't know who I am. Uh, so you don't, I've never met you. And then Jesus indicates, yes, I, I saw you under the fig tree. I know you. And then just a little bit later on with the Samaritan woman at the well, you, you, you say you don't have a husband. Yeah, you're right. You've had five and the one you're with right now is not your husband. Now, he does this gently, but he, he knows her. And so I think that, um, I think that one of, I mean, reading good literature is an end in and of itself, just as a, a, a human good. But it also enables, uh, it enables a person to be able to wrestle with aspects of human nature that one would not have if one's dealing with, with just sort of abstract arguments. Hmm. And that's uh, Frederick Buechner, a novelist that, that um, has meant a lot to me, um, wrote, uh, I think it was in The Clown in the Belfry, uh, but he wrote about how sometimes there's this understanding of Jesus's parables as being just the carriers of these abstract propositions. So if you could just sort of boil out what they mean and toss aside the parable, then you would have it. Right, right. Uh, but that's not what Jesus is doing uh, because what, what he's doing is, say in Luke 10, you've got a lawyer who's coming in saying, what do I need to do to in inherit eternal life? He has the abstractions down. But what Jesus does is to show him, he, actually he doesn't because he, he takes him through a story that requires a kind of emotional involvement, not just an intellectual involvement, although that's there, but an emotional involvement and then turns it uh, around on him. Mm. Exactly what uh, the prophet Nathan does with David in the incident with Bathsheba. He doesn't uh, just come and say, here is what the Ten Commandments say, here is what you have done. He instead sort of goes around, I mean, you think of... Um, uh, C.S. Lewis uh, writes about this in terms of, of Narnia. Um, there, there's a, a, you know, Neil Gaiman, the uh, novelist, um, fantasy science fiction uh, novelist, uh, writes about how he sort of felt betrayed by uh, Lewis at some point when he realized that uh, Lewis was a Christian and that huh. there were all these Christian themes in Narnia. And he said, I feel like there's a hidden agenda. Well, it's really not hidden, uh, but what Lewis says he's trying to do is to take things that have become so familiar 
that we don't pay attention to them at all and sort of go around those watchful dragons, he put it, that are guarding the door uh, and, and to get there. And, and that's, that's the case, not just with those big questions, but with the little questions too. There are all sorts of places that we protect ourselves. Um, and I think that good fiction has the ability to uh, show you what somebody really is thinking or feeling or experiencing when they're not trying to spin. Hmm. Uh, and it can also enable you uh, to, to sort of get around the defenses that, that you have. Hmm. Uh, and so I, I think that that's, um, that's a good and necessary discipline. Yeah, there's a way that narrative invites us into that world that simply just listening to rhetoric or you know, reading simple prose just as does not do. It's there's right. an imaginative aspect to it as storied creatures. And we see this sense throughout civilization, throughout human history, every culture going all the way back to ancient Mesopotamia have their hero myths. And yeah. these hero myths are a profound way of communicating the culture's deepest values. It, it helps give insights into that culture's ultimate guiding story. Now, we think about American culture, and we might not feel like we are old enough to have our own hero myths like the Epic of Gilgamesh and Mesopotamian civilization or the Greek Olympian gods, or, or even we think of like the British Arthurian tales with those round table knights in Merlin, who uh, does, I was just reviewing um, C.S. Lewis's space trilogy this past year, and uh, you know, it's fun to see how Lewis weaves in Merlin into the, the, that hideous right. strength. But we do have a, a sort of corpus of, of hero stories that uh, maybe those in ivory towers might look down upon, but they are immensely meaningful in our culture. And they, these hero stories fill the pages of comic books and right. box office movie screens and small screen streaming services. So it seems like uh, another thing I've picked up from you just listening to you over the years is that you, you see immense value in understanding our modern superhero stories. So yes. is that true? And what was your entry point into getting into the comic book mythos? And how do you practice in interpreting those stories in the exile framework? Well, uh, uh, comic books were important uh, to me uh, from, the, from the very beginning. I mean, as, as far back as, as I could remember. Um, uh, those were the days of spinner racks in the, in the, uh, drugstores. And, um, and that was, um, that was one of the best things. I mean, it was, it was better to me than Christmas morning to be able to go into, uh, a, a drugstore and spinner rack and see what, uh, what's there. I can, um, I can still remember in a sort of Proustian way, the smell uh, when one walks into some of the those drugstores all had their their own particular sort of smell, uh, and so that was uh, that was really uh, formative for me. And as time has gone on, I've I realized that what we see uh, in in the mythos when it comes to superhero stories is an attempt to grapple with uh, this this sort of balance between human aspiration and human reality. And, and both of those things are present uh, there in, in, in metaphorical terms. Um, and so often, uh, often you can find this sort of, um, you can find even in people who would 
say that they don't have any category for these things, a longing for a certain kind of Messiah, uh, and a you know, what Romans 8 would call a groaning uh, at the fact that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. Uh, and, and I think that, that often the, the mythos of these superhero stories can, can point us toward why do we want those things? Um, and, and so I think that's, that's one of the reasons they're important. So I'm going to admit my DC comic bias here, if that's I'm all right. I'm also biased. <laughs> you know, I've got a fair stack of Marvel comics as well and enjoy those movies. But on some level, for whatever reason, those characters seem to resonate with me more. And yeah. um, so in my humble opinion, I think the two most iconic characters in all of American superhero mythos are, are, are Batman and Superman. And so I'd be interested as you reflect on those characters in particular. First of all, are you, you know, it seems like people are either team bats or team soups. Do you have mm -hmm. a personal preference? Would you, if you have to pick one side? Uh, I like both, but I'm, <laughs> I'm team soups. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I'm going to start here then with a question about Batman then just because okay. <laughs> I'm a Batman guy and, yeah. um, you know, you've got the Batman of the sort of Silver Age comics, you know, the Adam West uh, and the Saturday Morning Super Friends iterations, the Cape Crusader. But over the last 30 years in particular, it seems like the Dark Knight has become a symbol of the sort of existential hero who's rebelling against the hopelessness and meaninglessness of Gotham City. Why do you think maybe the, the campy Adam West era Batman has fallen out of fashion, has been replaced by these more darker existential iterations and, and what do you think that reveals about our culture as you keep an eye on the story and you keep an eye on what's happening in the cultural framework that those stories are developing in? I think that Grant Morrison in his uh, book Super Gods is right that there's almost a cyclical uh, uh, kind of reframing uh, of all of these characters because they've been along, they've been around for so long. I mean, both Superman and Batman for 80 years uh, now. And so you can see the cycles depending upon what is sort of needed uh, in, in the cultural uh, moment. Um, but I think that the key is balance uh, ultimately because um, I'm an Augustinian uh, in, in this sense. I think that uh, that the world includes both hope in terms of the, the, the grace that is everywhere and also uh, darkness. And, and if, if one ignores either part of that, that I mean, there, there, there can be an emphasis on one more so than the other. But if one, uh, if one, if one emphasizes to the exclusion of the other, then you end up with either sort of Adam West silliness um, or the sort of Batman as anti-hero kind of dead Frank foolish, Miller almost, yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of thing that I think is, uh, is also not realistic to human nature. Certainly one of the great questions that we see uh, throughout the iconic struggle in the Batman story is the struggle between Batman and Joker. And uh, whether this is in the sort of Bruce Timm animated series universe or Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight universe, 
the, there seems to be this great tension between whether Batman's principal ethical commitment to not kill should be replaced by a more consequentialist approach. You know, maybe he should go more the, the vein of someone like a Deadpool or a Punisher. Because think of all the horrors that uh, continue to happen because he, he allows the Joker to continue to live. Does it really make sense, we think about this ethically from the, the, the Christian perspective, does it, does it make sense for Batman to not kill Joker when he keeps Joker's continued existence? <laughs> Seems to make life a whole lot worse for a lot, a lot of innocent people. What sorts of reflections do you see stories like this and this, this dynamic between uh, Batman's principled ethic? Uh, what, do you, what sorts of reflections do you see this affording Christians on whether or not we should have a principled ethical framework or a more consequentialist ethical framework? Well, I think that if someone's just simply paying attention to the, the story, um, one is going to uh, realize that there is something more going on than simply the equation of uh, how many people are going to live and how many people are going to die in terms of one's own moral agency. Now, I think that people, if they're not consciously sort of protecting that part of the conscience, get that um, more than they let on. And, and you can see that sometimes when there's an issue that's not already kind of tribally protected, uh, where, where someone will, will realize that. Um, but I think that, that that demonstrates that. I think that with, with Batman, though, to come back to sort of that, that balance uh, issue, uh, Tom King, who was, who was writing the, the Rebirth uh, series of, of Batman for now 60 or so issues, um, he, he put a comment on Twitter um, maybe a month or so ago that I thought was really fascinating because he said, you know, notice how many times, whether in children's cartoons or in movies, someone is knocked out with a hit to the head uh, and then comes to and simply moves on uh, from that. <laughs> and he said, that actually isn't the way that head trauma works. <laughs> no, it's not. Uh, it's not. And so, uh, and I thought about that and thought, you know, that's exactly right. And that kind of is, you know, there was someone uh, years ago, I can't remember who it was, who in sort of trying to make the distinction between DC and Marvel said there are exceptions to this, but basically if you want to boil it down, DC is looking at childhood trauma, the after effects of that. And Marvel is looking at adolescent angst uh, and the after effects of, of that. Wow. And so if you, and, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. Definitely. So if you think about, uh, if you think about, uh, you know, the, the, the joke is, uh, and I, I just heard this not, not long ago from someone who said, how many times are we going to have to see Bruce and Martha Wayne shot down in Crime Alley? How many people are going to show us the, the pearls uh, flying everywhere? Again, we get it. But the interesting thing about, uh, about the trauma that's there is that it's real trauma. Someone doesn't dress up like a bat and, and you know, go through the night into the alleyways if, if there's not. But uh, there's, it's not a, 
twisting sort of trauma. This is somebody who's building a family uh, and who is mentoring uh, people. Well, why is that? I think it's because um, there was someone, I can't even remember who this was not long ago, who said, look at the figure of the Joker and the Batman, both of whom have experienced trauma. Great trauma. Both had their one bad day, right? They both had their one bad day, but but the trauma itself doesn't explain them because they're 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 fundamentally different uh, uh, morally. And what makes the difference between the two? And uh, this person's answer was Alfred. Hmm, Alfred wow. Pennyworth yeah, is the difference yeah. between the two because you had somebody who was willing uh, to offer love and to offer protection and. Um, and that's what was needed. I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of truth to that. There is. And it's, it's, what's that? You know, I guess I haven't even thought of that dynamic because I guess I've always framed it in almost, you know, the, an existentialist sense. That's usually how it's framed. The difference between them is how, what they've chosen to do with that, that trauma, but it really does neglect the role of you know, someone stepping in as a father figure and mentoring and instilling the sort of values within a young Bruce Wayne. So it's not like he's just making these decisions in a vacuum and sort of, you know, like a, yeah, you know, we're celebrating a sort of Camus kind of existentialism. Right. But there is something about the value of family, of mentorship, of, of fathering, even when you might not have your biological father right. in the picture. That's profound. And, and why do you choose what you choose? Uh, you know, and so I think that um, there's a sense in which, you know, sometimes, I mean, we've even had this conversation on here where I think you asked something along the lines of, you know, who influenced you in, in this way or the other? Well, I can try to answer that, but I don't really know because a lot of the ways that we've been influenced are coming in these small little interactions over time for good or for ill uh, that one doesn't even, even recognize at all. So I think about, if you remember when uh, Fred Rogers, that, that clip that went viral when he was, I think, at the Emmys, and he stood up and he said to everyone, I want you just to close your eyes for a minute and think about the people uh, without whom you, you would not be here without for these, if it were not for these people. And you see this sense of, you just watch the video, and what you see is this sense of, kind of nervous awkwardness at the sincerity overload (laughs) that's there. And then you see people tearing up because they start to realize how dependent they are upon people who extended kindness and extended uh, attention when uh, they they didn't need to. I mean, that's, I think that we start to recognize that, um, in a way, which is is one of the reasons why hospice uh, nurses will say, and, and I, I've seen this at the bedside of, of dying people, they start talking to and seeing uh, people who have been parts of their stories, sometimes that have been dead you know, for, for decades. Uh, well, why? Um, I think it's largely because there's this sense of gratitude that starts to come in that we we don't even know. And we see that as grace, that there's a grace in all of that. I think that's that's wrapped up in that 
um, in that entire story, uh, it, but also the vulnerability that comes with that. I mean, you, in, in the Batman story, you have Dick Grayson, uh, but you also have Jason Todd. Uh, and, uh, and and there's... Um, it's Batman's failures as a parent as well. Yeah, parental yeah. and I think everybody, everybody at some point, you can identify that and say, I can either try to make myself invulnerable and build an exoskeleton around myself, or I can be vulnerable to being hurt. And if I'm vulnerable to being hurt, that's the only way that I can love. And, and that's, that's why... A point of connection with Batman, right? In particular, maybe that's the point of why Batman resonates so much with people is his vulnerability as a human. And maybe that makes it difficult for a lot of people to connect with Superman. That, no, I don't think that's right. Okay. I think that the people who think that uh, don't know the Superman character well enough. So, that, I mean, the, the playwright David Mamet uh, wrote an essay on Superman, and I think it's exactly right, who said, if you want to know uh, what is, why Superman persists, it's not the power, it's the vulnerability. And so you, you think about just the name is coming out of the Ubermensch uh, yes, idea yeah. from, from Nietzsche. And so you would think of, a, of sort of the first draft that Siegel and Schuster had of a character called Superman, who was this menacing, uh, sort of overpowering, will-to-power sort of figure. That's not who we ended up with. And who we ended up with instead is, and I think Mamet is right, if you want to see what the key is, to Superman's abiding uh, with us. It's kryptonite. So you have somebody who is vulnerable. And what is he vulnerable to? He's vulnerable to home and wow. to a, a home that he can never be reintegrated uh, with. And so you have somebody with incredible powers and yet, uh, and yet somebody who that, that weak point is the point that we can identify with, which is why when you see Superman at his best, uh, then what you see is the sort of figure who's um, trying to relate to Ma and Pa Kent and tr trying to figure out, am I really a Kent? Am I really a Kenzen? Am I an alien? Uh, and who's loving Lois and John. And it, you know, I think that that is what is really uh, key, which is why Superman tends not to work when he either goes so far in the earnest Boy Scout sort of direction or in the sort of angsty, you know, I'm trying to be... Peter Parker with different superpowers. That doesn't mm -hmm. work either. Mm. Instead, what you need is this uh, man of steel, but who can be shredded. <laughs> but but he's, he's shredded by, um, uh, you know, a yellow sun doesn't make him invulnerable to the thought of losing Lois or right, his right. parents again. And in many cases, it makes him more vulnerable uh, to that. He's already lost a lot. And I think that, I think that people can can identify with that. And, and ultimately, if you peel it all back and you say, why? Then I would say it's because our 
experiences that, but then you peel that back and say, why? And say, well, it's because God has created a universe around a cruciform Messiah. Right. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's why we sort of long for, for all of those, those things. Hmm. And I think wondering- that's true. Also, if you look at, um, th- there was someone who pointed out, uh, Superman is not just a kryptonite. It's also the secret identity because kids particularly, uh, sometimes will have a sense of their own strength that's not seen. And so there's a sense of, yeah, if you could just see me without these glasses on and in this Kryptonian body armor, then you would see that I'm really stronger than you think I am. And then the reverse is also true. So you think of Shazam. Right, right. Uh, and what you have is this, this powerful, muscle-bound character who knows I'm just a kid. I don't know what I'm, I don't know what I'm doing here. And people can identify with both of those realities. I've wondered too whether or not, uh, and not among not among hardcore comic book fans, but among maybe the general box office movie going population, you know, there there isn't another uh, solo Superman film on the horizon anytime soon. We've got several Batmans. We've got you know Zack Snyder's fresh cut of Justice League. There's some rumors that maybe Superman shows up in Shazam movies or the Black Adam movie that'll be coming with The Rock. I've been curious as to whether or not it's harder for a character like Superman with the associations that we have that seem to be an increasing association in postmodern thought and critical theories that, that associate power with, um, with automatically being malevolent. Uh, I, I wonder how much that growing sense in our culture makes it difficult for the Superman that I think we've we've come to love to be accepted in our cultural climate. Do you think it's more difficult now for someone who's, you know, uh, he is vulnerable to kryptonite and magic, but by and large part compared to the rest of the, the DC verse, he's, he's at the pinnacle of the hierarchy. And we seem to be very suspicious of people with power. Do you think that's another factor that, that has made Superman movies recently more, more difficult uh, to have widespread um, be celebrated? I don't think that's the main factor. Okay. If, if you look at, for instance, the uh, the Watchmen series uh, yeah. that just uh, took place, man, it, it, one, one would be hard-pressed um, without, uh, without coming up with the Judeo-Christian God of finding a, a character more powerful than Dr. Manhattan. Right, I right. think the issue is not so much the power as it is the sincerity. Uh, that's what becomes really uh, difficult. And so, if you if you look uh, if you look for uh, David Foster Wallace talked about this, uh, you know, fifteen years ago or so, where he talked about um, the fact that irony, which is is useful and is necessary in sort of exposing hypocrisy and and exposing reality, but it can become when irony is all there is and there's no sincerity, uh, it becomes exhausting. And what it becomes is just another tool for self-protection. Totally. And so he sort of takes this through um, uh, sort of television. It says, so you go from the really syrupy 
uh, sort of uh, sitcoms of the 50s and 60s and, and early 70s. Uh, and then you move into a time where there's a reaction to that with a kind of hyper irony where we're all making fun of ourselves, Seinfeld and then, and then beyond with that. Uh, and it becomes, um, it becomes a way of saying, I'm protecting you from making fun of me by making fun of myself first and by sort of winking and saying, LOL, nothing matters. Okay. Oh, man. That's a self-protective yeah. uh, mechanism. And it works uh, even in genuine uh, relationships. There can be a sense of intensity that comes with genuine sincerity. I mean, I, I have a friend like this who is the most sincere person I know. And when he, when he talks to me, he will take me by the shoulders and look right into my eyes and say, I want to tell you something right now. And he, he tells you this. And what I've noticed is that my first inclination is to sort of deflect and disarm with a joke. Not because, not because I don't want the affirmation that he's giving to me, but because it's so rare that it, it, at first it, it's almost alarming until you realize, uh, wait a minute, this is, this is the light <laughs> that, that, that I need. And I think that's what, that's what happens. But I think that because the overuse of, of irony is so exhausting, that when sincerity actually does come through in a genuine sort of way, uh, it actually can work really yeah. well. I mean, I talked yeah. about Mr. Rogers uh, a few minutes ago, but also think about um, early in uh, the quarantine, uh, I found myself actually tearing up because there was a Zoom reunion of the Parks and Rec cast <laughs> singing Bye Bye Little Sebastian <laughs> together. And there was a sense of, uh, there was a sense of, of tears came to my eyes just because there's a sincerity in that show that isn't false. It, there, there, there's, there's all the foibles of the, of the people involved, but there's a genuine sincerity and a respect that Ron Swanson and Leslie Nope can have for each other across political uh, differences. And even in, and many people have pointed this out, look at the difference between the British version of The Office oh, yeah. and the American version oh, yeah. of The Office. There's a reason why uh, kids watch The Office over and over and over again on loop. And it's because there's sarcasm, there's some cynicism, but there's no nihilism. The, the core of it is that Michael Scott is a buffoon, but he's not evil. There, there's, something, there's something sincere uh, there. And the, the love story between Jim and Pam, there's something real and human and sincere there. So that when you, you come all the way through to the conclusion of that show and uh, Jenna Fisher, the, the Pam character, sums it up and says, you know, I think there's a beauty in ordinary things. That's a, I mean, yeah. that's, that's a sincerity that actually can reach people. But we live in a time where because everything is often so nihilistic and so utilitarian, that sincerity is often mistaken for marketing. And I think, that's, I think that we experience that in the church 
And the answer to that, and I'll have people say this, you know, I, I, I'm loving the people in my community, in my neighborhood, and um, they just, they, it, it doesn't get me anywhere. And I always say, well, I understand that, but where are you trying to get? Yeah, maybe you're not supposed to go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, maybe you're supposed to go anywhere. And, and, maybe, uh, and maybe what these people need is for you to continue to be sincere uh, and to be open and, and loving them, even when they don't trust you. I mean, I, 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 Jesus has done this for us. Yeah, <laughs> We I can't think do it as well as he can. I mean, thinking about what you were saying uh, earlier in our conversation about you, you, it was a side, um, just a quick aside that you said about literature, good literature being a, an end in a sense to itself. That the, yes. there doesn't need, it doesn't need to necessarily lead you somewhere else. And I, I wonder if that, uh, for even for Christians, because maybe there's been, you know, some, some distorted ways of thinking about our mission, about bearing witness to Christ and confusing that for making a sales pitch yeah. to somebody that it's mm-hmm. really even unnerving and difficult for Christians to see that God has made things good and that there are things that can be, uh, I, I, there is still an end. The end is that this good thing in and of itself bears witness to a good God, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to go beyond that. And I, I think even bringing up the office is a great example of that, because in my generation and what I see with uh, Gen Z, so again, I, I'm an older millennial, the irony thing is out of control. It is yeah. so, uh, so hard, especially among like creative types. Uh, yeah. I find it uh, musicians, I, I'm a musician as well, that uh, even in music, it's really hard. I see these virtuoso musicians posting these um, what seem to be two-minute clips on Instagram of their virtuoso musicianship set to something that seems uh, completely ironic, completely nihilistic. I don't know if you've even seen this thing. Uh, There's a guy, I think, in Cambodia. I don't know how he went viral. All he does is he counts. He sings um, you gotta look, you gotta, <laughs> I'll have to send you the link later, but, uh, he just sings one to 100 and all of these virtual virtuoso musicians are grabbing the videos of his song and composing incredible music to this guy, just counting, you know, and it gets clicks, it gets likes and, mm-hmm. uh, but the irony thing is so, uh, it's, it's such a, like a Kevlar vest that people wear. And, and uh, a show like The Office is really interesting in that it uses that irony. There's, especially in the early season, the first couple of seasons, there was much more of that British sense of, uh, of, of irony and maybe a sense of nihilism within the show. But uh, it, it actually, as you, as you say, it develops into this story about the goodness within things that we might see as ordinary and meaningless. And uh, that... That, I think, is why people my age and younger will just keep that thing on loop. I mean, when I was teaching, I'm a, I'm a you know, I'm in full-time pastoral ministry now, but I taught in, um, you know, Christian school context for 11 years in high schools. And, and when the switch started happening in schools to allowing technology and devices into the classroom, I don't know how many times I caught students in the middle of a lecture 
just watching The Office yeah. for the yeah. 100th time. You know, it's yeah. like, have you not seen this series? They're like, no, this is my fifth or sixth time through the series. And they're really craving a sense that in the apparent emptinessness and the, mean, the meaninglessness of the ordinary that we don't have in a larger secular framework to assign value to, that they're really searching for a story that could make them feel like the ordinary is, is meaningful, that it's full of, of goodness, truth, and beauty. Uh, I think that's a profound, uh, profound insight brought up. Well, well and, and because when it, when it works, uh, think about the way, I mean, no one is using irony more than Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, he's using irony constantly. Uh, and the Apostle Paul does the same thing. But the irony is, uh, as Paul would put in another context, for building up and not for tearing down. So the irony is never to protect oneself. It is to go out uh, to, the, to the other and to, and to reframe. So the irony for, for Jesus is not the other side of sincerity. It's, 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 a, it's another form of sincerity. And so if, we, if, you, um, if you don't have the irony, uh, then what you end up with is a kind of Christianity that doesn't have paradox. And then you, 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 you don't have Christianity. No. Yeah, you end up with, with something else. But if, if all you have is irony without sincerity, then you're going to end up in uh, in, in nihilism. Yeah. If you have time, Dr. Moore, I'd like to throw one more question your way as maybe a, a practical application and encouragement to people that are especially in church contexts. Um, you've brought up here with even, you know, shows like Parks and Rec and The Office, and we've been talking about comic book characters. And, you know, I, I just find it amazing that th this, um, th these, these domains, especially we think about the world of superheroes, that we see something like the San Diego Comic Con, which launched yeah. in 1970 and had around 100 attendees to back before COVID in 2019, the San Diego Comic Convention drew 135,000 attendees. My number one most watched video on YouTube by far is a video essay on Batman versus Superman, the, the Zack yeah. Snyder movie. Mm -hmm. um, you know, me posting a clip of this interview will not draw anywhere near the amount of t attention and interest. Right. Do you think uh, in some way that there are good things happening in places like Comic-Con uh, for people that it may in general want little to do with church that we as people, maybe leaders in churches could actually learn from? What, where might Christ be at work even within those subcultures that we could have something to learn from? Well, I think, I think what you can see there are people who... Um, are, are wanting a community. Uh, and it's a, it's a sort of community that tries to balance the individual uh, with, with the community. So, so finding a, a tribe of like-minded people. And that's something that I think is, I think that people are embedded to, to long for. And, and we ought to be the people who understand that and get that and say, this is, uh, we actually can point you toward a fuller expression of that. Yeah, that's 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 a good that's a good encouragement for us to be on the lookout for where Christ might be at work and revealing the truth, revealing yeah. 
Uh, all truth, goodness, and beauty comes from Him. It's a singular yeah. source. So if we can look at those things and celebrate them and maybe even uh, reflectively look within our own church cultures to see where perhaps we're not celebrating that in the right. same way that we might even see at a Comic-Con um, that, that might give us some, some opportunity to say, hey, you know, there's, there's room, for, room for growth here. Well, thank you, Dr. Moore. You've been so generous with your time this morning. I know you're very busy. Um, I imagine that over the next uh, couple of months, your speaking engagements and uh, invitations onto other programs are only, only going to grow. So I'm so thankful for the time that you've uh, given us today. Oh, it's glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, that was such an enjoyable conversation. So thankful. Dr. Moore is a very busy guy, uh, frequently appearing on CNN, Fox News, does quite a bit of writing, has his own podcast, and he's got a new book coming out. I would encourage you to check that out. You can pre-order it. I believe it's going to be released on October 6th. It's called Courage to Stand. Uh, I'll leave a link to the uh, where you can pick up and order that book in advance. And also go over and you can check out the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission website. I'll leave a link in the description for that as well. You know, today's podcast wouldn't be possible to do ad-free without those who are supporting this podcast on Patreon. Those of you in the Deep Talks Patreon community, thank you so much. I want to give... I want to give an extra special thanks to those who are giving at the Theology 201 level. People like BJ, Eli C, Josie, Justin T, Luke H, Michael H, Paul S, Paul R, Sarah R, Sean C, Stephen M, Tim K. Thank you all for your generous support. You guys are helping. All of you in the Deep Talks Patreon community are ensuring that I can keep doing this podcast and are ensuring I can do it without having ads. I don't want to do ads. So if you want to be a contributor and uh, help me get to the point where I can justifiably <laughs> continue uh, in the direction of getting close to doing, I'm not there yet, but if we get to 300 supporters on Patreon, I'd be able to do weekly episodes and keep them ad-free so that we can provide free theological, philosophical education, provide thoughtful, nuanced conversations like the one you heard today to anybody with an internet connection. So thank you for considering supporting. You can find a link in the description in the show notes of this podcast to figure out how you can become a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community. And in, the, in doing so, you'll get access to bunch of bonus Q&A episodes. I post charts and articles and, uh, and I respond to every message I get from people on Patreon. If you want to connect with me another way, you can reach out to me on Twitter at Paul Anleitner. I try my best to respond and interact with uh, questions and comments that happen over there as well. You know, so if you've heard something today that maybe you even disagreed with a different perspective, uh, from myself or from Dr. Moore, feel free to reach out to me at any of those places. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear what you've learned. We also will have a discussion forum on Patreon for this episode. So maybe you want to chime in over there and have some interaction with other people as well. So you can check that out too. Finally, I would invite you or ask you if you are really enjoying this podcast to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That is the number one place people are still going, even if you listen on a different uh, podcast platform. It's the number one place people are going to to listen and discover new podcasts. So if you leave a review over there, it helps other people discover it. 
All right. Well, thank you so much again. Reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.